Welcome to a special edition of the Double Dose Podcast. This event was originally recorded on February 16, 2022 at the first ever Medical Cannabis Summit. The event was hosted by Dr. Patricia Herford, Dr. Matthew Bays, and Mr. John Pennington, CEO of Proper Cannabis. For more information on the Medical Cannabis Summit, the presentation slides are available in the show notes, or you can go to www.doubledosepodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the presentation. I'm going to raise my voice and get your attention. That kind of worked. So we have a, a whole front row of seats for all of you smart people. Fill the room. Yeah, right. Yes. All the OBGYNs who are going to have most of their patients use cannabis to help them push. It's good for sexual function. Good for sexual function, yeah. There you go, Dr. Judd. All right, so I'm gonna do a, a brief welcome and we're gonna get rolling. So first of all, I wanna thank everyone for coming. Um, it's a really groundbreaking event that we have here at Proper. I wanna thank John Pennington and his folks um, at Proper for hosting and let's give a round of applause for that. Or don't. It's, it's hard to hold a drink and clap, so um, I just want to kick us off. I'm going to let you know what's on the, on the table for tonight, and then I'm going to hand it off to uh, Trish Herford, who's the brains and the beauty of the evening. I'm, and so I just want to talk real brief about why we're here. So as we know, the law uh, was passed in 2018 to allow medical cannabis in Missouri. And at starting then, I was starting to think, okay, this is something I need to get educated on. So like most things, it took me four years to really do this, right? But through family members and friendships with Trish and, and Dave Crane and smarter people than me, I got to get a little bit educated. And then I was fortunate enough to sit on, on a podcast that Trish and Jeff, Jeff uh, put together with John right in the other room. And that's when my interest was peaked. So I said, hey, guys, we need to put something together to educate so that people know how to do this right, know how to do it in the proper way, uh, tongue in cheek and really showcase a place that does it the correct way, which is John and his group. So we're gonna have some really high level talks. This will all be taped and I assume available for future viewing. Yeah, download the QR code now if you wanna see the slides. So that's the point is we're gonna get educated here and then we're gonna have, my favorite part, probably because it involves me, is I'm gonna be, I'm gonna model a patient interaction with a dispensary worker because one of my big questions until I went to a dispensary with a family member was, what do people interact with the workers? How do we know what to do? And so we're gonna model a patient interaction, and then we're gonna have a tour, okay? And then we're gonna have informal. I don't know, John, if you're kicking us out at a certain time, but we're gonna try and be pretty timely. We wanna be done in under two hours, and so we're gonna to stick to that. And uh, anyway, that's it. So I'm gonna introduce John Pennington. He's gonna uh, kind of give a brief overview of his history. Okay. Jeffrey, did you pull us up? You got this, uh, my little slide. I was told there'd be no map. Really? <laughs> so this is, uh, good evening, everybody. Um, kind of timely. I, um, last night, I got a home. <clears throat> I got a text uh, from this guy, my neighbor. He said, hey, guys, I need some advice. My dad is 91 and dealing with prostate cancer. And he's not been doing well. He's in a ton of pain, back and shoulder. He's going to his oncologist tomorrow and is going to ask for a medical marijuana card. 
when we get to one of your stores, what low-dose product do you recommend? Thanks. Um, said, hey, Jimmy, once he gets his card, I can help him get squared away. Um, I'll get you connected with one of our doctors. We have a few options that we could help, help with pain, quality of life. Thanks for reaching out. Keep me posted on tomorrow. Today. Um, hey, guys. Not surprised by his oncologist wouldn't give him a med card. Against blank policy. Any help or ideas would be great. Thanks. Say, well, Jimmy, I'm actually hosting 50 doctors tonight. I'll see if one can help. <laughs> he said, thanks. Good luck. So um, that's what I'm charged to do, I guess, tonight is to help a guy who's dying of cancer at 91 years old. So a little background on myself. Born and raised here in Kirkwood, uh, Missouri. Uh, father of four kids. Um, I've been in the real estate uh, development business for about 15 years. Previously, I was a high school teacher in uh, Denver, Colorado. Uh, went to school to become an engineer, walked away with a history and psychology degree. Um, we've been here um, in uh, real estate development uh, around kind of the Midwest, St. Louis region. And about seven, eight years ago, we, uh, we built the state of Missouri's largest non-for-profit methadone treatment center up in Hazelwood. <clears throat> it was an interesting process. We actually began uh, trying to, to develop a site in Florissant. And I get a call from the mayor of Florissant. He says, you're not going to do this in my backyard. I said, really? What do you mean by that? Uh, no comment. Okay. Um, well, what are we going to do? No comment. So I called city attorney. He's a childhood friend of mine. said, hey, this is not right. Uh, probably 50% of, of the patients are his constituents. Um, do we want to make this a PR issue? I've never sued anybody. I don't want to get sued. But, you know, I don't know what the reason is. This was the non-for-profit non of the year in Hazelwood. They needed double or triple the space. We weren't welcomed by Florissant, so we went and built them a space down the street. They went from seeing 300 patients a week to about 800 patients a week. That's when my whole mindset shifted with how the FDA works, how addictions work, <clears throat> not to mention I grew up kind of in the drug treatment space. My mom was an executive for the May Company, eventually sold to Famous and Bar, and she had a call to go work with the inner city poor and drug addicts. And then my sister runs some non-for-profits in the mental health and drug treatment space. So fast forward, uh, met Mitch, friend over here, and we started this trade association. And, um, you know, it was something that we wanted to make sure we had standards and expectations of how we would expect the marijuana industry to be. We applied for license, and um, here we are. So like any business, um, you know, I like to start out by figuring out what's your ethos. You guys work for hospital systems. Why do you do what you do? Um, that's how we started this company. We sat around the table and we talked about why people like Tom, who you'll meet, and Jeff, who you'll meet, why did they leave you know, their, their careers in Colorado to move back to St. Louis? Why did they take a risk with a guy like me to um, come back here and work and apply for a license not knowing that you were guaranteed to get anything? And you start asking yourself these questions and next thing you know, the values or the ethos of the why kind of come out and it leads to scenarios as such. So uh, this is what we do. This is how we make decisions. It's real simple. Um, I've got a, uh, a board member of mine who's the former president of Emerson Electric. He's a mentor. Um, he said, John, never jeopardize your values. And if, you, if you're not adhering to your values, something's wrong, but it's hard to do. So we, this is what we do. We try to make decisions build things, hire people, fire people, design things with these intentions. 
So every quarter we uh, sit down and we, uh, we, don't, we try not to go through job reviews. We try to go through value reviews. Are you living these? What are your behaviors? So here we've got 14, 15 different directors or leaders. Uh, we, we invested in um, what it means to be a leader proper. And then we go on to define, well, what are your behaviors? How do you live those? It's one thing to state, hey, this is what it means. It's another thing to say, this is what I do. So, um, and then we make this stuff here. So we've got, um, you know, authentic cannabis brands that come from specific genetics. Uh, we hired the director of uh, culinary and the head of taste at Bissinger's. So we've got uh, some edible brands. We have a lifestyle brand. Um, and all these are centered around making sure that we can connect with the patient. So unfortunately, I'm not one that goes to the doctor all that often. Right, wrong, or indifferent. I got Trish. I got Dennis. But when you think about the experience sometimes, and this is no criticism to you all, but you go in and you know the patient is already a little weary about going to the doctor. And how much time does the patient actually spend with the doctor, right? Well, what's going on in somebody's life? If I can only spend five or 10 minutes with my child, how am I really getting to know what's going on with them? So what we try to do, and I think we'll try to role play this out, is we have opportunities to not just make things, but to interact with patients who we try to get them to be vulnerable about what they're struggling with, what they need help with. And they're there and they're actually talking to us about it. So we have a lot of trust on us, but we don't always have the right answers. So uh, we've designed products um, around the same connection point. Uh, these are our stores. We've got two licensed facilities. We're on a contract to buy a third and we're opening a fourth. Um, and we'd like to have about eight to 10 of them around the state. And we've got about 130 employees now, actually about 150, and these are our folks. So um, happy to answer questions. High level, um, this is who we are. Glad you guys are here, and hopefully you guys can learn a little something. At the end, we'll try to tour in probably small, hyper quick. Uh, we take not just security, of course, but um, we, we take uh, our rooms um, um, and our processes very seriously. Um, and you know, the plant is a living organism. So I very, very rarely go into our rooms. We've got great rooms back there and they're beautiful plants, beautiful. And they smell great. They look great, uh, but they're fickle. So when you frustrate them, they won't perform, right? And if they don't perform, I don't have a business. So, uh, but we'll give you a little tour. We'll meet some folks. Uh, really appreciate you guys trust and being here and, um, Trish, thank you. Matt, thank you. And Emmy, who's back there, uh, she, she's on our marketing team. She puts all this stuff together. So thank you to Emmy and, uh, well, good night. So. <laughs> Gotta get my readers. Cannabis hasn't fixed this. <laughs> All right, you missed my disclaimer. That was if you have any questions from what we present tonight, go to the Department of Health and Senior Services or contact an attorney who has knowledge in the business. All right, let's go through this quickly. Um, Amendment two passed in November of 2018. A month later, 
Amendment 2 became Article 14 in the Missouri Constitution. And what that said is that marijuana could be used by patients in the state of Missouri and that uh, physicians could take part in educating and qualifying patients who had um, conditions that were appropriate for use of cannabis. The Department of Health and Senior Services was then tasked with overseeing this um, process. They um, created regulations and licensing procedures and a 4% tax, a retail tax, is um, uh, obtained from all cannabis products sold in the state. And that money is used to then help veteran services in the state. In addition, it helps offset some of the costs of running the program. To date, cannabis in the United States is in every state to some degree, minus those that you see in bright orange um, or if CBD. It's either decriminalized, it's legally medically, um, it's legal medically, or it's um, adult use, meaning that adults can purchase without a dispensary card and medical um, use. What's the physician role? Physicians in the state of Missouri are allowed to certify patients who have qualifying conditions, and I'll go through those in just a moment. Only physicians who have an MD or a DO, so physician assistants, chiropractors, assistant physicians, nurses cannot certify patients in Missouri. The role of a physician is you have to, and you will attest to this if you certify patients, that you meet with a patient, you create a medical chart, that you review their medical history, including their medications and allergies, and that um, if you're working with a minor, that you have the consent of their custodial um, parent or their legal guardian to serve for them to serve as a caregiver. You'll talk about the risk associated with cannabis use in a fetus, as well as the risk of cannabis use in a breastfeeding uh, child. You'll complete the certification form, it's now all electronic, um, and submit that. The patient role after that is then to, hey, I've met with a physician, I have a qualifying condition, I go to a, a website through the Department of Health and Senior Services, there are tutorials on um, a way to do this and make it easy for a patient. They'll go to My Compliance, a, a website, and there are some slides here if you download that QR code that will show you how to do that. The patients will then submit their information. Basically, they have to prove that they're residents of the state of Missouri. Um, and, and then the electronic submission by the physicians and uploaded automatically. The department has 30 days to respond to that certification process. If they don't, the patient automatically is given a um, certification. And they'll have to go through this process annually. So it, you have it for a year, has to be renewed every year. Um, once the state processes the application to date, and Andrew, you can correct me, I don't think they have ever missed that 30-day mark. Um, so once they process that, which takes about two weeks, you receive your electronic certification through email, and then you're welcome to go to any dispensary in the state of Missouri. We don't have any kind of relationship with states on both sides of us. Um, for example, you can't use your dispensary card in Illinois. It's no good there. It's only good in the Missouri um, cannabis dispensaries. Once you have that, you're welcome to recertify every year. Um, the department started taking applications in June of 2019. They were issuing their first cards in July. We didn't have dispensaries open then. We certainly didn't have cultivation facilities working. Now we're up and running, and we're adding to that database of cannabis businesses throughout the state. This is what the old form looked like. The first, the top part of this is the, the patient information. The patient has to... Um, include their name, social security number, date of birth, 
They have to, um, you have to attest that they're older than age 18. The next section is the physician section, which is your basic information, your office address, um, and your uh, medical license number. The qualifying conditions are listed here. I'll go through those. The second page on the right is the attestation page. This is where the physician says, yes, I met with the patient. Yes, I've reviewed their medicines. Yes, I've reviewed their allergies. Yes, I've created a chart. Yes, I've talked to them about the risk and benefits of cannabis, including those to a fetus or a breastfeeding infant. And then the physician signs it, dates it, and that went to the department. This is what it looks like now. It's done electronically. There's a way for physicians, if you're interested in doing this, that the physician can sign up and com complete that portion of it electronically. And the same sort of information is included. You have to attest to what is the qualifying condition that the patient has. If a patient requests more than, or you think they need more than four ounces of cannabis, which is a lot, <laughs> then you have to have two physicians, independent physicians who agree on that. The cost for the patient to go through the process with the department is $25 and some cents. To, if they want to cultivate and they can cultivate on their own, it's an additional cost of $100. And that's repeated annually. What are those qualifying conditions? Cancer, epilepsy, glaucoma, intractable migraines, spasticity, Parkinson's, think of Parkinson's disease, MS, spinal cord injuries, any uh, psychiatric disorder that's been diagnosed by a state licensed psychiatrist, PTSD, anxiety, depression, um, HIV and AIDS, by far the most common reason patients are certified in the state is this next category. And this is where chronic pain uh, comes into play. Chronic pain um, is, a, uh, in a con is a considered a condition where the medications that you use could be more harmful than cannabis. And so you can think of, there are several other um, disorders that could fall into that category. Insomnia uh, might be one of them. Any terminal illness. And then the last category is sort of a, a, a catch-all for other conditions that might be appropriate for cannabis use. And we'll talk about the endocannabinoid system and why these conditions could benefit from the use of medical marijuana. All right, I'm going to send it, um, introduce the, my speakers behind me. All of us are part of the Health Education and Training um, Committee with Missouri Cannabis Trade Association. Cindy Northcutt is a registered nurse and an attorney, and so she's going to talk about the history of cannabis and then go over some legal aspects of cannabis use, especially how it affects physicians in Missouri. Um, we have Darcy Chuscote, um, who is, I said cone. I always want to add a T. Sorry, I know. Tuscone. Tuscone. We don't know. I know. Anyway, who is also a registered nurse, who's worked in um, home health and hospice care for her career, and is now um, getting advanced education and training in cannabis. And um, her primary goal is safety and um, access for patients in Missouri and, and nationally. Um, and Natalie Brown, who works for EKG Labs and has started up a um, division of EKG Labs that is specific for um, the safety and compliance of lab testing with ma uh, marijuana products in Missouri. Which button changes the slide? Down or over? Yeah, right here. Oh, cool. Sorry. Um, Cindy Northcutt, I'm an attorney and a nurse and a cannabis patient. Um, talking about the history of cannabis, um, human beings have used cannabis for, as a medicine for thousands of years. Um, we are just now starting to rediscover legally how beneficial cannabis can be. Um, 
the ancient, ancient Egyptians used cannabis. We found cannabis in China in archeological sites dating back to 2700 BC. Um, it has been grown all over the world and it has been used all over the world as medicine. Um, Queen Victoria's personal physician wrote in the Lancet in the 1800s, um, in almost all painful maladies, I have found Indian hemp by far the most useful of drugs. Um, she, Queen Victoria used it for menstrual pain and cramps. Um, the, it was listed in the United States Pharmacopeia starting in 1854 and was not removed until 1942. Um, Eli Lilly was one of the biggest producers of Indian hemp tinctures and actually had a 200 acre grow in Michigan of all places. Um, yeah, boy, poor planning on their part, but um, anyway, in, after the fall of prohibition, there was kind of a push with cannabis. Um, they were, cannabis was widely used, it was widely available. In 1937, the, and I'm, I'm trying to put this in a politically correct way. Um, one way of controlling particular populations of people that you can't outwardly control, you can't legislate or litigate things even in the 30s that were specifically detrimental or um, biased against certain groups of people. So, and hemp has been grown in the United States since our inception. Um, Missouri and Kentucky were the two biggest hemp growing states in the country until after the Civil War. Um, in the 30s, the, kind of, like I said, I'm trying to, trying to figure out how to, how to say this, in a politically correct way. Um, it was discovered that cannabis, and we tend to use the word cannabis rather than marijuana. Marijuana is a derogative pejorative term. It's a slang term that was developed in the 30s. It's never been used to actually refer to the plant. Um, but it's an ethnic slur. And the entire, in my opinion, and in many other opinions, a lot of the prohibition and the push against cannabis in the 30s after prohibition was to control certain groups of people um, that were legally you couldn't do anything, but if you want to control people's behavior, control access to things that they use. So in 1937, the Marijuana Tax Act was passed, and in order to grow or produce any kind of hemp or cannabis products, farmers had to have a $200 stamp, which in 1937 was equivalent to about $220,000 today. So it, it's not illegal to grow it, you just have to have the stamp to grow it. And if you can afford the stamp, knock yourself out. Um, it was the American Medical Association in 1937 was asked to speak to, the, to Congress on cannabis. And interestingly enough, um, they wrote a position paper and the verdict was that it was not harmful or addictive and they saw no reason to regulate it. Um, unfortunately, the powers that be did not listen. And five years later, the AMA no longer supported cannabis as a medicine. It was removed from the USP, and it has been illegal in some form ever since. Um, in 1964, uh, Dr. Raphael Meshulam in Israel started studying cannabis and actually discovered, he, THC was the first thing that he was able to isolate um, and Eventually, he discovered what we now refer to as the endocannabinoid system. And Darcy will talk about that later. Um, but 
there is a ton of research that is being done and that has been done on cannabis. One of the things that I hear from practitioners is, well, evidence-based medicine, we've got to have research or we can't do this. There is research. Um, as if you go on PubMed and Google cannabis, oh, there are over 30,000 research articles that will come, that will come up. We can, just because we can't do the research in the United States, doesn't mean it's not being done, it is being done at academic centers um, of excellence across the world. There's a lot of research in Israel, there's a lot of research in Spain. Um, so it's out there, it is being done. Um, in the uh, 1996, California passed Proposition 215, and that was the first state that actually legalized medical cannabis, and it's progressed ever since. Um, Colorado and Washington uh, went REC in 12, well, Colorado went REC in 16, uh, Missouri in 2018. Ooh, I got the right button. Um, the Tax Act, as we talked about, stopped production. So if you can't grow it, it's essentially illegal. Um, interestingly enough, the Tax Act was supported by the Hearst, Mellon, and DuPont families. Because, I don't know, you can make paper out of hemp, and you can make oil out of hemp, and you can make synthetic, yeah. I don't know. Coincidence? I'll leave that up to you. Um, Again, in the 70s, we saw the push on the, with the Nixon administration and the Controlled Substance Act. Um, in, the, in 1970, it was classified as a Schedule I drug um, and has remained thus ever since, unfortunately. Interestingly enough, the United States government owns a patent on cannabis, the only patent on the cannabis plant, um, because you can't do that now. But yeah, they, in 2003, were granted a patent for cannabis, but it has no medical value. Um, so a little bit of history, that's kind of how we got to where we got. Um, I do apologize for my obvious bias, those of us in the industry. Um, this is one of the things, the one of the biggest struggles that we have in the medical cannabis and in the cannabis industry period is the perception of cannabis. And there, that stigma still attaches and people still have a knee-jerk reaction to, oh my God, what do you mean you're, you're smoking weed? You're using weed, that's awful. It, you know, you're, have you, didn't you see that commercial? This is your brain on drugs? You know. um, <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Um, you know, so given that, and given the fact that, especially for the last 75, 80 years, the, the United States government, at least, has been not a big fan, I'll put it that way. Um, that's changing finally, and here we are. So with that note, I will let Darcy tell you about the endocannabinoid system, and then we'll talk about legal stuff after, so. All right. Hi, I'm Darcy Trasconi. Um, I'm the nurse in home care, hospice, and palliative care. I've been in it for over 25 years. Um, I actually am working on my master's in medical cannabis, and part of the reason why I'm doing that is because the clients that I work with are, are dying for this information because patients are coming to them on cannabis, and they don't know what to do with it. Um, some of the hospice medical directors are actually telling them to ignore it, which I find a little odd. So. I'm going to talk about the endocannabinoid system. And one of the things, one of the reasons why this is important, it's kind of the, I mean, it is why we're here. If we didn't have an endocannabinoid system, cannabis wouldn't do much. So let's dive in. 
So the endocannabinoid system, it's actually a neuromodulatory system, and it affects signaling in the nervous system and the endocrine systems. Um, the cannabinoid, cannabinoid ugh, receptors, they're present in different brain cells, so we see them in neurons, astrocytes, and microglial cells, which we know are, are their prominent function is to remove pathogens from the CNS system. Um, so they're really important in neural signaling, and the endocannabinoids can act as a negative feedback to slow neurotransmission. So our body creates endocannabinoids, um, and it does it because we have an endocannabinoid system. The endocannabinoid system actually has four different parts. We have endocannabinoids, those are the uh, endogenous ligands that we produce within our body. We have receptors, um, we have synthesizing enzymes, and we have degrading enzymes. So what happens is that in the endocannabinoids, anatomide and 2-AG, are the, they were the first ones found. So they are the most studied. There are other endocannabinoids like PEA and OEA that we have found, but there's not as, not, not as much information on those. Um, the endocannabinoids actually bind to the receptors. So we have CB1 and CB2 receptors, um, and we've known about those for a while. There's a lot of research on CB1 and CB2 receptors. But there's also, and the CB1 and CB2 receptors, they are G-protein or G-coupled protein receptors. So um, GPR55 um, has recently been acknowledged as maybe the third cannabinoid receptor. It does not have the same gene sequencing, but it does have the same mechanism of action as the CB1 and CB2 receptors. We also have other G-coupled uh, protein receptors like GPR119, but we also need to remember that the endocannabinoids work on other receptors within the body, especially CBD. So we have our TRPV um, cation channels and our PAR um, alpha and gamma um, which it also impacts. So these endocannabinoids are attaching to these receptors, but we also have synthesizing enzymes which create these endocannabinoids. So our body produces these enzymes that create anatomide and 2-AG, and I'll get into this a little bit more. Once we've created those enzymes, they've done their work. We have degrading enzymes that then go in and break down anatomide and 2-AG. Um, and that is what stops the activity of the endocannabinoid system, okay? So just so that we're clear, because this can kind of get confusing, but endocannabinoids, these are the brain-derived ones. Anatomide, 2-AG. Phytocannabinoids are what we're going to get from our marijuana, cannabis, buds, tinctures, extracts. It's the cannabinoids, THC, CBD, CBN. And then we also have synthetic cannabinoids. Some of them have been produced by the FDA. They're FDA approved, like Maridol. Um, there are a few others, not many. Um, but we also have synthetic cannabinoids on the market that are not FDA approved. So, okay. We're going to focus on the endocannabinoids and how that cycles through the system. And then we're going to talk about phytocannabinoids and what cannabis does. So if we start with 2-AG and anatomide, they are both derivatives of fatty acid, um, arachnidonic acid. Um, they're pr produced in response to increased intracellular calcium. But there's some controversy that exists around 2-AG. 
um, when it comes to that. Um, they're, they question it. Um, they have a short half-life, but when they do act, they are powerful. Um, overall distribution, they are in different parts, uh, different brain areas, 2AG and anatomide are about the similar. But what we find in the brain is actually that there are higher levels of 2AG. So when you start screwing around with 2AG metabolism, you start messing up with the retrograde signaling that we see in the uh, neurons. They're highest in the brainstem, striatum, and hippocampus, and they're lower in the cortex, diencephalone, and cerebellum. Some of these words I'll slaughter. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I really like this because it just kind of points out where we're going. So we have these endocannabinoids. We know that they interact with uh, the G-protein-coupled receptors. CB1 and CB2 are the classical receptors. GPR55 is non-classical. Um, but we know that the cannabinoids impact with our G-protein-coupled uh, receptors, and they also have impact on our TRPV cation channels. So we've talked about the endocannabinoids that our body produces. Now let's talk about those receptors that they're going to bind to. So we have CB1 and CB2. Um, CB1 receptor is the most abundant um, receptor in the brain. It's abundant in the CNS and the peripheral nervous system. And if we look at neuroanatomical studies, what we find that is that um, CB1 is primarily located in the presynaptic uh, terminals of GABA, glutamagergic, dopamine, um, acetylcholine, norepinephrine, serotonin. It impacts all of those areas. It, we will find them in lower but functional levels in liver, muscle, adipose tissue, vasculature, heart, pancreatic beta cells, reproductive organs, and alveolar cells. So they're everywhere. But they are predominantly working in the CNS and PNS. In the lower areas, they do have effects. But there's just not as many. CB2 receptors are expressed at a much lower level in the CNS. Um, compared to the CB1 receptors. And what's interesting is that when we look at different pathological conditions, especially the ones that um, characterized by neuroinflammatory states, um, we can see an upregulation of those CB2 receptors in glial cells, such as the microglia. Well, what that tells us is that, you know, when the body is out of whack, we produce more or less receptors based on what the endocannabinoid system needs. Because the focus of the endocannabinoid system is to promote homeostasis, okay? Um, CB2 receptors are expressed in high levels in immune cells and lymphoid tissues. And they're all absent in the medulla oblongata. So we're, we're not seeing them in the brain center for respiratory and cardiovascular function. So it's not impacting those areas. I like this slide because it just kind of really demonstrates what we're seeing here. We have high volumes of CB1 up at the top, all in the brain and spinal cord area. And then we can see that it impacts so many different areas in the body. But then the CB2 receptors, we see less of them, but they are throughout the body. And we have actually found uh, receptors in the synovial tissue in joints in various areas. And those receptors can be in, like they can be on the outside of a cell, they can be on the inside of a cell as well. And they all have different actions. 
So let's talk about, we have our endocannabinoids, we have our receptors, they bind. Let's talk a little bit about the signaling and how that happens, because this is important. It's retrograde signaling. So usually we go presynaptic to postsynaptic. With endocannabinoid sin signaling, it goes postsynaptic to presynaptic. So we get a buildup of calcium in the postsynaptic, and we create the anatomide and the 2-AG, and that buildup of calcium kicks it out, and it goes over to the presynaptic, and it binds to those CB1 and CB2 receptors, and then it has a multiple pathway of action, meaning that it can be inhibitory or it can be stimulating, right? And it depends on where in the body these are happening. So this particular one, we can see that GI is inhibitory. So it's going over and it's inhibiting the adenylcyclase, which decreases the cyclic AMP. Um, it also, the beta and gamma are overgoing and they're closing those LT, N-type and PQT, PQ-type receptors, which stops the calcium from going out. It opens up the potassium channels and potassium goes out, which makes the, the cell more um, negative. So we're changing the way things are going. And that's what these anatomide and 2-AG is doing, is it's, it's actually going in and inhibiting something. Typically, we see a decrease in neurotransmission with cannabinoids. Okay? Also, again, here it is. It hits the TRPV, the PAR, the voltage-gated ion. There's so many different areas that this, these different cannabinoids affect. All right, so just some characteristics about 2-AG and anatomide, because when we start talking about THC and CBD, they are going to follow a similar path, okay? We won't be creating them in the body because they're exogenous, but they will follow a similar path. So 2-AG, the activity at the CB1 receptor, it's a full agonist. It doesn't take a lot of 2-AG to get that receptor activated. Um, it's also a full agonist at uh, CB2 receptors. Um, when we think about how 2-AG is made, it's made in the cell um, by diacylglycerol lipase, and it's turned into 2-AG. Um, once that 2-AG goes out and acts on, and does whatever it needs to do, the body then says, okay, it's time to break it down. And it breaks it down to arachidonic acid and glycerol, okay? Anatomide follows a similar path, except for it is a partial agonist at CB1 and CB2. Well, actually at CB2, it's really inactive. Um, but it's a partial agonist at, at CB1, which means that it doesn't have as much of an impact as 2-AG when it hits those receptors. Again, it is synthesized as the body needs it um, from the NAEP-specific phospholipase um, and turned into anatomide. And when the body is done and it's time to shut down, it's degraded by the fatty acid amide hydrolase into, again, arachno, arachnic acid, arachnic acid, and uh, ethanolamine. Sorry, my mouth is dry. <laughs> All right. So we've talked about, what I did with my water. We've talked about how um, anatomide and 2-AG impact the body. Now let's talk about, because when we're consuming cannabis, we're talking about 
exogenous ligands. We're talking about exogenous drugs, right? So THC is considered the intoxicating component of cannabis, and we all know that. It is a partial agonist at CB1 and CB2, similar to anatomide. Um, and the activation of the CB1 receptor by THC results in changes in neurotransmission. So it changes the way our neurons are communicating. CBD, although it, there's some argument, it is the non-intoxicating component of cannabis. People still believe that there are some psychoactive effects, and I believe that as well. Um, but it is non-intoxicating. They're not going to have the euphoria and all of that kind of stuff. It's really too soon to draw a lot of conclusions about CBD because CBD impacts the body in so many different ways. There's, um, these are all proposed mechanisms of action, and we really need more studies on it. But it is an allosteric negative modulator. It's an antagonist at CB1 and CB2. It also is known to increase the levels of anatomide. And we see, again, the interaction with serotonin, opioid receptors, your TRPV cation channels, and such. So it's really a very different cannabinoid. I like this slide because I think it really demonstrates the, the this is how CBD communicates with a variety of different proteins in the body. And I mean, these are still, we're still early days. They're still doing the research. Some of this is very much still proposed. But um, we can see just from this that, you know, CBD is an allosteric agonist at the glycine receptor, which has some impacts on epilepsy and autism spectrum disease disorder. Same thing down here where CBD is an allosteric agonist at the CB1 receptor, and we see impacts with psychosis and schizophrenia, okay? The thing to remember about the different um, diagnoses that you're dealing with is especially like PTSD, schizophrenia, psychosis, all of them, the endocannabinoid system is actually changed in a lot of our patients. It's not like um, somebody who has no issues. The body has changed and the endocannabinoid system is balancing, it's compensated to balance that body. So when I take THC or I take cannabis, it may affect me differently than somebody who has post-traumatic stress disorder or anxiety disorders or other disorders in the body, okay? This is just to give you an idea of these are different cannabinoids that, that have been identified. There are still studies going on. There are more cannabinoids being identified on a regular basis as the clinical research goes. But as you can see, the different cannabinoids we are finding through the research have different potentials for patients. Um, so if I think about the slide, CBGA is kind of like the mother cannabinoid, and it breaks down into other things. So it breaks down into CBG, and it breaks down into THCA and CBDA. Anything that has an A on it is an acid. So we have THC, it's an acid, CBDA, acid. CB, when we heat these products, it drops that acid and makes it THC. So when we're purchasing cannabis, we're purchasing THCA, and we smoke it, it turns into THC because we've heated the plant. Same thing with uh, CBDA. Same thing with, you know, we see CBDCA and such. 
Um, CBN is really well known for helping with sleep. And when THC, the cannabis, is exposed, exposed to oxygen, it actually breaks down into CBN, right? So some of these processes are happening normally with the plant, and some of them are happening because of the way we consume, and some of them are happening because some organizations are actually uh, kind of doing these processes for the consumers so we can come out at the end with just a CBD product. But there's a lot of value, and there's a lot more information on this. I could probably spend days. <laughs> All right. So cannabinoids are really important, but when we're talking about plant-based medicine, we also need to talk about terpenes. And there's other parts of the plant that are important, but right now where we are is cannabinoids and terpenes, and that's what your customers are going to be really focusing on when they get their certificate of analysis on the products that they purchase. So when we talk about terpenes, they're naturally occurring in plants. Um, it, it's what gives them their smell. So pine trees, piney, right? Um, each terpene has a unique mechanism of action. And the thing that's interesting about terpenes is they actually alter the movement and actions of THC and CBD in the body. And that's what contributes to the entourage effect. So when you're talking about giving your patients isolates, it's very different than talking about giving your patients a whole plant. With a whole plant, we're going to see more of an entourage effect because we're going to have those terpenes, we're going to have the cannabinoids, and we're going to have other pieces of the plant that are really important. And just to kind of give you an example, I mean, you can see over here that myrcene and pinene actually have a different path of functioning, but they increase the analgesic anti-inflammatory effects of THC or CBD. So when you're purchasing a product with myrcene, you're actually getting better anti-inflammation and analgesia, okay? Same thing with beta-carophylline and limonene. They have a different path. Limonene actually impacts serotonin dopamine. It decreases the co cognitive function improvement of THC, which it, we know beta-carophylline works really well with some seizure patients, right? So when you're thinking about cannabis, you need to think about the cannabinoids as well as the terpenes and explaining that to your patients. And that is it. I'm going to hand it over to Trish, and she's going to do cannabis uses. So I put this slide up here. If you have a pulse, there's probably a use for cannabis for some reason. Um, and these are all things that the qualifying conditions in the state of Missouri um, go over. So again, just to reiterate, how, when you take in a medicine, how it's absorbed, how it's metabolized, how it's distributed, and how it's excreted can all be affected um, um, or affect cannabis in your body. So this is from healer.com. Dustin Sulak is a great resource. And I tell my patients if they want extra information just to go to that website. But it's, his method is always start low and go slow. Um, and you want the greatest medicinal benefit with the least amount of side effects. There is a tolerance that can build up with cannabis and, and we should be aware of that. And it's expensive. My patients who use cannabis for pain control spend $250 to $350 a month on some occasions. So it can be fairly expensive in the dispensaries. How can you take it? You guys know all these things. I'm not going to waste your time. Um, the onset of action is much faster with inhaled um, cannabis. The edibles take longer to be um, active, and the duration of action is much longer. Bidirectional effects, and Darcy touched on this. In the same individual, cannabis can have different effects. 
and then two different individuals, the same cannabis product can have two different effects. And this was probably the biggest reason the US Pharmacopeia had an issue with categorizing cannabis as a medicine because you couldn't predict it. And so that's why patients who start with cannabis and they're unsuccessful, it may not be that cannabis will never be effective for them. It's the right cannabis strain with the terpenes or the plant products with it. It's at the right time in whatever's going on in their body and it's with the, whatever medicines they're taking. And so it is a little bit of trial by error until we have more research or we understand the plant and the plant biology better. Adverse effects. The biggest thing from this is what patients do you not want to recognize cannabis as a useful um, tool in treating? Psychosis is really it. I would say pregnancy is another big category. But beyond that, even if you have heart disease, lung disease, there may be a role of cannabis for any of our patients. And it's kind of understanding how the plant works and how to use it. Drug interactions, this is a big one. You can go on Medline and find, type in THC and find any drug interaction. It's there and it's available. But the big ones, if you, the take home message is that THC can be increased by other medications. It works through the cytochrome P450 system. If you inhibit that, um, you're gonna increase the uh, levels of THC. And there are medicines that are commonly do that. Ketoconazole, macrolides, and verapamol. You can, THC and CBD can affect other medications. Um, theophylline is a big one. If you smoke cannabis on a regular basis and it tends to be more regular use as opposed to intermittent use, you'll decrease the effectiveness of theophylline by 40%. It can also have effects with other medications. If you drink and use cannabis, you're gonna have more of a psychoactive effect. The potential serious drug interactions, you should be aware of that both THC and CBD can affect warfarin or coumadin um, and theophylline. Clobazam, which is an anti-seizure medication as well. All right. Oh, I'm up. You're up. Hey. Hi, everyone. I'm Natalie. <clears throat> I'm Natalie Brown. I'm the Director of Operations for Missouri Cannabis Testing. As Trish men mentioned, um, I kind of was the party responsible for starting the cannabis division of EKG Labs. Speaking of, it's important that you understand uh, where we come from. Uh, we come from your world. We come from pharmaceutical medical device testing. So EKG Labs, uh, which are the namesakes for the company who are featured here, worked together previously at Scienta, Kamir, if those names ring a bell to you. Uh, and the EKG Labs <clears throat> division is still in operation today. Pharmaceutical and medical device testing is where we come from. Intro to cannabis testing. So as many of you know, uh, cannabis testing is still uh, FDA illegal. Um, it is scheduled as a class one drug, excuse me. Um, many states have some form or fashion of legalization. Trish had the uh, slide earlier, kind of same slide demonstration. However, uh, cannabis testing requirements are dictated by, from state to state. Um, most all states require some sort, some sort of profile testing and other contaminants, microbials, heavy metals, residual solvents, et cetera. And I'll go into those a little bit later. What is required in pharma? What is required for cannabis testing? Many of you may have that question. Um, we are kind of the gateway to make sure that uh, safe product is distributed to patients. The necessary evil, as some cultivation and manufacturing facilities may look at us, um, but we are an integral part and very important piece to make sure that that happens. So 
Pharmaceutical products. Pharmaceutical products must meet final, final form specifications. A specification is defined by ICH, International Conference of Harmonization, as a list of tests, reference of analytical procedures, and appropriate acceptance criteria. Very similar, cannabis products must meet final form, final packaging requirements in order for them to be distributed to a dispensary, which then is distributed to a patient. Some of the things we test for in pharmaceuticals and some of the things we test for in cannabis. Things like identification, assay potency, impurities, and other specific tests dependent on what the product is, such as uniformity dosage, all of those things, water content specifically. Similarly, cannabis products have the same requirements. Potency and profile testing, which would categorize as identification and assay. Impurity testing, pesticides, mycotoxins, heavy metals, residual solvents, all of those things. Uh, and, all, and other specific tests dependent on dosage, moisture content, water activity for dry unprocessed flour, all of those things. <clears throat> If I was a physician uh, trying to qualify a patient, I would want to know, how do I know that this product is safe? Who is regulating you guys saying you are safe, you are approved to do whatever you say? And who, how, do, how can we trust you? So we basically have three buckets or three um, documents that we have to be compliant to as a testing laboratory for cannabis products. The first and foremost would be 19 CSR, which is the Missouri rules. This dictates everybody's requirements from, from a license testing, from a licensed facility point of view. This outlines all of the manufacturing requirements, all of the test, all of the cultivation requirements, all of the dispensary requirements, all of the patient requirements. Uh, Trish kind of segued into that a little bit earlier. We also have a document called ISO 17025 and ISO 17043 that we have to remain compliant to. Again, I'll elaborate on those in the future slides. Missouri state rule requirements. You name it, we gotta abide by it. From security, cameras, to limits and specs, all of those things. I'm gonna focus on the last three columns for time's sake. Um, security and record keeping, nah, we'll throw that out the door. So, sampling, the third column. It is very important for you all to understand that testing facilities are completely third party and completely independent of any cultivation, manufacturing, or dispensary. This is intended, uh, so no ownership team can have uh, any ownership priority in any other cultivation, manufacturing, or dispensary. This is designed such that we remain bi uh, biased, or unbiased, whatever the word is, to the results. We don't, if I was a testing facility, um, and operating, and I knew that my dispensaries wanted this potency result. I could, if I was not a great person, tell this dispensary that um, they had X amount of THC in their system or, or in their product or CBD product. So it's important that you understand that we're completely independent of any other operation. Whoops. Additionally, it's important to understand that we are responsible as a testing facility to go to these cultivation and manufacturing facilities and pick the product that we want to take back to our lab to test. This is also intended so that we remain, um, that what we are taking and what we are testing is truly representative of the whole harvest or whole process lot. For example, if you have a, a lot of 30,000 gummies, I have to take 20 
gummies of my choosing, not your choosing, my choosing. So this is intended so that the cultivation facility cannot send us product that they know is gonna test their grade A bud, that's gonna test at the highest THC, but that's not representative of the whole harvest. That's not what the patient's actually getting. So we are responsible for doing that and we have procedures in place to do that um, that are in compliance with the Missouri rules. What we test for. So I kind of segued into it a little bit earlier. Uh, we test for cannabinoid profile. Currently, Missouri requires five cannabinoids that we have to test for. Uh, CBD, CBDA, D9THC, THCA, and CBN. Um, my lab and most other labs in the state of Missouri are probably processing around 10 to 11 cannabinoids. Just for R&D, extra information for the patients, which is great. Microbial screening, Aspergillus, E. coli, Salmonella. Uh, those are the three, uh, three molds and um, microbials that we have to test for. <clears throat> pesticides, um, we have a long list of about 15 to 20 pesticides that we have to test for. Heavy metals, uh, mercury, cadmium, chromium, lead, arsenic are the five that we currently have to test for. Residual solvents, long list of about 15 residual solvents we test for. This is primarily important for uh, concentrates and oils. So in order to extract THC out of the plant, um, there are big machines that you'll probably see in John's facility later um, that help extract THC. And most people, um, not all, but most use some sort of solvent. Um, whether that be solvent or gas, really. Propane, butane extraction, ethanol extraction, all of those things. We want to make sure that the final patient isn't ingesting any of those uh, potentially harmful materials. Additionally, water activity and moisture content. Uh, these, these are really important for kind of giving information on how susceptible the plant is to things like mold and mildew. So the higher the moisture content, the more susceptible it is to mold, um, which could potentially be harmful for a patient. Foreign matter screening, this is a visual, visual screening. Make sure that it's clear, it's a plant. Things like plants and things like living organisms. Uh, make sure it's clear of any spider mites, any hair that may have gotten on it, just so we, we don't want that obviously consumed by a patient. And then terpene profile. While terpene profile is not required by the state of Missouri, as Darcy mentioned earlier, it is very important to, for the final patient to treat certain ailments and conditions. Limits and specs. So limits and specifications. Talked about specifications earlier. Missouri rules are what we abide by for the specification limits. It is notable that there are certain specs for things that are intended to be inhaled versus things that are intended to be orally consumed or like a topical. Um, which is very in line and on par with what pharma regulations are. There are, obviously, if, it, if you are intending to inhale the product, it gets into your system a lot faster. It is, takes less time for your body to break down those potentially harmful contaminants. Um, we're, we really like the rules set up the way they are. They could use some tweaking a little bit with our suggestions, um, but it, it's very important that um, they're kind of separated into two categories, which is, like I said, on par for pharma regulations. ISO 17025, um, it is a specific document um, which classifies general requirements for competency of a laboratory as well as uh, impartiality. I spoke a little bit about how labs are independent of 
manufacturing, cultivation, and dispensaries. Um, in addition to that, we have this uh, ISO audit every year, annual ISO audit. Um, a third party auditor comes in and says, what do your SOPs say? Are you following your SOPs, standard operating procedures, and are you following the Missouri rules? Are you doing what you say you're doing and are you doing it right? Um, this is an every year thing. Um, that's kind of why I have that be prepared. So um, it's definitely a big task that labs undergo um, and every lab in the state of Missouri has to meet this requirement one year from their approval to operate. In addition to kind of, hey, do you know what you're doing and are you doing it right? We have ISO 17043. This is a document that kind of outlines proficiency testing. Proficiency testing is a concept to help the state regulators, um, as well as internal, understand the differences in the laboratory results and your methodology. It is not FDA regulation, regulated, cannabis is not. There are no standard operating procedures of how to test these things. So it's up to the labs to come up with methodology that is accurate, compliant, and representative and to ensure the patient's safety. It's up to us to do that. We validate our own methods. So ISO 17043 says, hey, we want to check your validations. Are your validations and your processes on par and are they going to be accurate? What happens is you um, enroll in a proficiency testing program. These, this program sends you blind samples. The blind samples have a known concentration or known value of microbials or known value of potency. You then test those by your validated methods, by your validated procedures. You upload those results to the state and the state says, good, not good, you were way off. What do we need to do to fix this? So um, those are some things that help regulate and make sure that labs are staying consistent and staying accurate and compliant. Results, where do these results go? What do they do? Once you go around to John's facility, you'll see um, metric tags everywhere. Metric is the statewide track and trace system. From the time the plant's about this big to the time it goes to a dispensary um, and to the patient, you can track that sample back through its whole life cycle, who made it, what happened to it, what they did to it, what room it was in at, at, on X amount of days. Um, it's pretty incredible. So uh, this process is where everything is tracked and traced. Also, um, as Darcy mentioned, we create a certificate of analysis or a C of A. Um, most dispensaries have access to these. Probably all of them by now are requesting them. While it's not required by Missouri, um, this is basically a breakdown of what testing was performed what were the results? So every result that we tested um, that was state mandated that met those requirements is on that certificate of analysis. Um, and you, a lot of people are creating QR codes now for the patients that they can put on their labels. The patient can scan the QR code, goes right to the C of A documentation, um, and it's beautiful. They can see the real-time results that maybe not all the label is representing. So there's not gonna be heavy metal results on the label, but you may want to know, how close was this to the specification? Did it meet? Sure, but maybe let's think about this. So um, very important for the patient. I want to conclude, um, at least my presentation, by um, kind of piggybacking John's concept. Um, if you don't start with a mission and you don't have a mission as a company, um, and a person, then what are you doing <laughs> with your life? Um, our mission is 
to help individuals across the state ensure they have access to safe medical marijuana through accurate sample testing and quality results. Um, I get very passionate about this, very, very passionate, um, because this industry is so new and so different. Um, and while cultivation facilities and manufacturing facilities don't have to choose us as their testing lab, we want them to because we're doing things right. So I just want to leave it with that. And please come find me if you have any questions. I have a big document about all of my testing that I'm going to try to QR code because I couldn't fit it all in this because it's like only five slides. That's all they gave me. So, um, but come find me if you have any questions. Thank you. So lucky you, you get me again. We're gonna go fast. Um, I know you guys would much rather go see the pretty plants than listen to me talk for another 10 minutes. So we're gonna go quick. Legal issues, legal implications for physicians. We talked a little bit about this. The biggest barriers in a 2019 cannabis business executive survey to adoption of medical cannabis by physicians. Lack of clinical trials was number one. 65% uh, of physicians were concerned about legal exposure. Um, there is a theoretical risk of malpractice. I say theoretical because as of this morning, I cannot find nor can any of my cohorts find any state anywhere where any physician has been sued for malpractice for recommending cannabis. Now, I'm not saying it won't happen, hasn't happened yet. Um, and we'll talk about that. Um, Federal Schedule One status and DEA issues. Um, that can be an issue. So. It's something to be aware of. Also, lack of reliable guidance from anybody. Medical associations, their colleagues, it's illegal. We can't talk about it, we can't discuss it, we can't study it, and we certainly can't tell patients about it. Um, concern that patients may be punished by their employer, concerns that physicians may be punished by their employer, and there is a st stigma still attached to this. We, those of us in the industry are doing everything we can to try to break that, but it still exists and we're aware. Um, some physicians don't want to be the serp doc. They just don't. Um, and that's unfortunate, but we're starting to see that change. And as we all learn more about the plant, hopefully we can work on changing that, getting rid of the stigma and accepting it as, as medicine. Um, the big thing, you cannot prescribe it because it's illegal. However, you do have the constitutional right to recommend it to your patients and to discuss it. Um, a little pesky case, um, Conant versus Walters, and there's a slide in here about that. Um, that case gave physicians, it, a federal case gave physicians the ability to discuss cannabis with their patients. It's uh, United States Supreme Court decisions. Um, so you can't prescribe it, but you can recommend it. Um, in August 16, um, three states tried to get the DEA to deschedule it. Um, at that point, they still refused. Um, however, Epidiolex, which is CBD, um, was removed from the CSA in April of 20. Um, it is the first time that the DEA has confirmed a cannabis-derived medicine is anything other than a controlled substance under the CSA. Um, and although it is no longer scheduled Federally, there are some states where you cannot prescribe a Um 
And this leads to this huge, horrible patchwork that we have between state and federal laws and the conflicts there between. And it puts everybody in a very uncomfortable position. Um, we all try to navigate it the best we can. There are some guidelines, there are some rules um, for that navigation. Uh, the, in 2014, the federal government, there was an addendum to the budget bill called the Rohrabacher Farr Amendment, and it has been passed every year since. And basically, it prohibits the Department of Justice from using federal funds to prosecute or to go against any states that have come up with their own medical cannabis laws. Um, and that has been, again, it's been signed every year since then. Um, we, there are basically four memos from the federal government and some case law that kind of guide us in the industry and I think can guide you guys as well. Um, you'll hear people talk about the Ogden memo and then there are three coal memos. Um, those are named after the particular um, attorney that was involved on the federal level um, that wrote the memo. And the 2014 memo, um, it is not likely an efficient use of federal resources to go after states that have a legal cannabis program. That being said, um, and Cole Memo, you guys can read that, these slides, um, attorneys are to focus enforcement efforts on those federal priorities and not bother physicians that are writing certs in Missouri or Missouri cannabis patients that are using cannabis for their back pain. Um, the theory is the federal government has bigger and better things to do. Um, otherwise, they rely on state and local enforcement. Um, they did emphasize in the last poll memo that this guidance doesn't diminish the authority. They can, they can do this if they want. They're just saying they're not going to. So again, this is that kind of limbo land that we all live in. Um, and it's uncomfortable. And until something changes on the federal level, it's going to continue to be uncomfortable. Um, there was a 2016 case in the Ninth Circuit that said that the department can't take any action against an individual unless there's evidence that they're in clear violation of state law. Um, but there was a January 22 case in the First Circuit in Maine. Um, there were two state licensed, Maine has a caregiver program. And there were two state licensed caregivers in Maine that were distributing flour above their state approved limits. Um, they were allowed six plants per caregiver and they had 895. Six, 900, meh, it's an easy mistake to make. Um, yeah, and the whole selling across state lines thing, I think, was an issue, too. Um, that was frowned upon. And they did get in trouble. Um, so just because the feds aren't supposed to enforce this stuff, they will, if you've got 895 plants and you're selling across state lines. Um, legal states, physicians can write a recommendation. Uh, there's the site on Conant. Um, to date, no court in the United States has considered any kind of potential malpractice liability for a physician certifying or recommending medical cannabis. Has not happened yet. I'm not saying it won't, but you know how lawyers are. Some lawyer will sue somebody. Um, but so far it hasn't happened. Um, medical malpractice in Missouri, I know you've all heard this, you've learned this in med school, I'm sure. Um, if an injury was caused by the malpractice negligence error or mistake related to healthcare, in Missouri, statutory definition of a, definition of a health care provider is pretty broad. Um, Missouri follows what we call the reasonable provider standard. Uh, what would a reasonable provider do in the same or similar circumstance? Um, what would an ordinary careful physician do in the same or similar circumstance? This devolves quickly into reasonableness arguments about recommending cannabis to patients, 
you end up with dueling experts. You know, I've got an expert that says this is fine. The other side will have an expert that says, oh no, this is the worst thing ever, and it, it comes out to who's got the better expert. Um, elements of malpractice quickly. Duty, breach, you've got to have a duty to the patient. You've got to breach that duty, and as a proximate result of that breach, as a proximate result of that breach, the patient was harmed. With cannabis, it's going to be difficult to show that. Um, in the immoral words of the sage Willie Nelson, the only way cannabis will kill you is if a bale of it falls on <laughs> It, Like Darcy talked about, there are no cannabinoid receptors in the areas of the brain that govern respiration and cardiac function. So they, um, the LD50 for cannabis, the best that somebody tried to calculate, you, a 150-pound man would have to smoke 1,500 pounds of cannabis in 20 minutes. Snoop's alive. Now Snoop, I know, God love him, Snoop may be our only opportunity to study this. But, you know, again, unless it falls on you, you're probably going to be all right. Um, state and federal courts, employment and cannabis use, um, Missouri's an employment at Will State, we, you can be fired for any reason or no reason or just because it's Wednesday. Um, you can be fired for cannabis use. Um, we are starting to see some states providing some protections for employees. There are always going to be federal jobs and high-risk jobs that you can't use cannabis, um, and that, that will never change. Um, the, the FAA seems to think that pilots should not use cannabis while flying planes. I don't know. Um, but yeah, over there are truck drivers. There, again, there are always going to be people that can't use cannabis, at least at work. Um, but the ADA, surprisingly enough, doesn't offer any protection because of its federally illegal status. Um, what do you do? How does a conscientious doctor recommend medical cannabis while minimizing your liability? Um, I wish the AMA were more helpful to you. So far, it has not been. Um, there are some organizations that are developing guidelines. Um, in the slide deck, you'll see that um, FSMA has a position paper and a statement that has guidelines on medical cannabis use and um, provision for physicians. Um, the AMA, interestingly enough, in 1937, they were all over it. Now they're like, oh, no, no. Yeah. Um, Missouri State Medical Association, Medical Association is vehemently opposed to cannabis. Um, I don't know that that will ever change. Um, I hope that it does. And I hope the way that that's going to change is physicians in Missouri start saying, we're not afraid of this, and we think there's some medical benefit to this, and you represent us, and we want our voices heard. And there's my shameless plug for MSMA. FSMB guidelines, um, those are on your slide deck, and there's about a 17 page. If anybody wants those, let me know. Um, they're self-explanatory, and they're common sense. Talk to your patient. Find out what they need. Chart it. Um, monitor it. Check back in with your patient. Not rocket science. Um, adult use in Missouri, that is a topic that is um, of current interest. There are two initiative petitions that may be on the November 22 ballot. Well, there more, there's two, two groups that are sponsoring initiative petitions. Legal Missouri 22 is, um, was written by the folks that brought you Amendment 2, which is now Article 14. Um, they have been accepted by the Secretary of State and are collecting signatures for the November ballot. Um, that would make uh, adult use legal in Missouri. There is another Fair Access Missouri. It has proffered four different 
initiatives, and I'm not sure what the deal is with that or if any of them will collect enough signatures to make it on the ballot. Um, as of yesterday, there was a, um, uh, Representative Ron Hicks filed a marijuana omnibus bill that is about 78 pages that, um, it's very interesting, but I, given that it was filed this late in the session, it's unlikely that it'll get a lot of traction. Um, and that may be a good thing. Um, the Legal Missouri 22 petition has been a lot of work and a lot of, I'm stuck on the word, a lot of people spend a lot of time, a lot of people that are very knowledgeable about the industry, um, they gather information and help from people all over the country, and it's, it's solid. It's a, it's a solid adult use bill for the state of Missouri. Adult use is coming. It's just a matter of when and how. Um, Legal Missouri 22 is an excellent option. Um, and it's probably the only one that would likely be on the ballot. And we have that, and we have signature pages. If anyone would like to sign, please see us after. Um, that can be arranged. Um, given the polling, whatever one of them, if, whichever one, one of them is likely to pass. If one of them gets on the ballot, given the appetite for adult use in Missouri, uh, given the surveys and the research that's been done, it is likely that if one of if one of them gets on the ballot, like that happened in 18, one of them will pass. So adult use is, is coming. It's just a matter of when. Say again? Yes. 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 Um, some people call it recreational use. I prefer to use the term adult use. Um, all, can, all cannabis use is medical. How does that impact like, this sort of business? Well, it, that's another whole issue. Missouri, the Legal Missouri 22 initiative can t allows the medical side of this to stay operational and actually offers some encouragement for the medical side of cannabis to stay operational. Some states, when they pass an adult use initiative, um, the medical, their medical program just kind of goes away. Um, there are some states where that hasn't happened and I think that, that Missouri will be one of those states that will still continue hopefully to have a robust medical cannabis program. Um, because so the biggest difference is the tax. So you can get yeah. the store as a medical patient and you can buy the same products. Um, the difference is how you tax them. For other states, you have to separate and some states will allow medical, if they have both, they'll, allow, they'll have different products. If you have a medical card, you can buy products that are perhaps um, higher THC content than you can on the, on the adult use side. But I think honestly, as a physician, you wanna, you wanna still take and tax your patients, right? So whether they're medical or recreational use, they're using it for a medical reason, you wanna understand Absolutely. What do you mean by adult? So what are they? 21. 21 for to just walk in and buy it, but as um, on the medical side, if you've got a child with Dravet syndrome, absolutely, um, and a child can get a medical card, two physicians have to sign. John, did you have something? Uh, you know, it's nice that you're collecting the signatures at the dispensaries, and you know, one of the things that we were hearing about, will it change what we're doing? You know, when the answer is no, um, you know, we're still selling the same products, still putting the same, you know, our name to it, certainly the service, and it's also some of our staff members. The, big, the biggest difference is you're opening up the pool of folks who right now are fearful of getting a card and they can't turn to a doctor to get a card. Uh, but they're still dealing with the same qualified conditions. So it just opens up the pool of, of patients. And a lot of, a lot of patients, a lot of eligible patients and patients that cannabis would benefit are afraid to get a card for multiple reasons. There's still this fear of, well, I'm not going to give the man my name until I'm not using it again. 
there's that. Um, there's the but my guns. Um, you know. So there are a lot of patients that actually cannabis would be a huge benefit for that will have access through an adult use market that would never get a card, would never step into a dispensary. So, so um, doctors absolutely. And again, physicians need to understand you're not recommending cannabis to your patient. You're only, as the physician role in Missouri is you recognize your patient has a condition that the state of Missouri has identified as a qualifying condition for the use of cannabis. So the fear of doctors saying, you know, I'm not going to tell my patient to use cannabis. Well, I'm not either. But I am understanding that there is a medical disorder that could respond to cannabis, and I qualify that patient. I certify that patient that they have that condition and they go and it leads right into the next part. My biggest fear is that my patient is going into a pot shop with some hippie dude who looks like he's been stoned for three days and they don't know what to do. And she's 72 and has Parkinson's. So Matt and I are going to, Matt is going to role play an experience with a dispensary agent. What's it really like when you send your patient in there into a dispensary? What what are the, what's happening to them? Here's my 72 year old female Parkinson's patient. No, I'm just teasing. Dan and Sarah, I think Dan and Sarah are here. First of all, we're almost done, so we'll do I think this has um, been great so far. I want to thank all speakers so far. It's been really educational. But what I want to model is what I went through with a family member in Colorado when I was really, really naive. She needed medical cannabis because of a uh, hip pain, and she was on Vicodin for 10 years for this, and has been able to successfully really, really, really decrease her use of that. So um, Dan and Sarah are here. They are dispensary workers at Proper, um, and so I'm walking in the door. I'm the patient, okay? So I'm walking in the door, and this is what your patients are going to see. Hey, how are you, sir? I'm here to, uh, here's my card. Sure. Um, I need some help. Yeah, so, you know, first thing we do is we check the and, you know, we're just going to make sure they're comfortable. You know, we start, probably start with asking, you know, what is it for you? What so kind I, of relief are you looking for? So I have really bad hip pain. I've been told I have bad arthritis. I don't want to have surgery, and I've been on Vicodin for too long, and I don't like how things going to feel. Sure. So anything else, you know, other than the pain, you know, how are you sleeping at night? Is that causing you issues? Yeah, all of it. Uh, I don't move around as much as I want to. I hurt when I sleep, and but then a big thing is I don't like how that bike it makes me feel. Yeah. I wonder if I get any relief without that. Okay. Um, what is it about the bike? Is it the you know is it the the, the nausea with the pain meds or the you know the over drugsness? Yeah, the over intoxication feeling of it. Both, but I don't like how I feel because I get some pain relief, but then I'm dysfunctional. I want my grandkids to see me. Perfect. Uh, you know, on bike. You know, like the good place I was like, what kind of experience do you have? You know, I was saying stuff. Sure. Which one? So you are probably using traditional flour. You know, rocking. I had a fat joint at Woodstock, and that was 1968, and I have not smoked since then, so I have not used pot in. Uh, how are your Sure. So then I would I would look and be asked questions like, how do you like what mode are you comfortable taking? Just smoking cannabis? Sound feeling you? Is it is it off-putting? You know, some people ask people where they have bronchitis, asthma, things like that. In inhalables really isn't their bad. 
edibles. Yeah. So, so what? What sounds good? I heard about these edibles. That seems the least scary, and mm-hmm. I like candy, so I like that. But I've heard that might take a little longer. I'm not against smoking, and I've heard about vape, but I've heard that vape has killed some people. So that's sure. kind of scary. So that's has a lot to do with the black market, what people were putting in things to make it go longer, you know, cut it, make it last farther than the black market. Our stuff's tested. We don't use any of the vitamin acetates, any of that kind of stuff that was causing those lung disease, any of those thinning agents, anything like that. Okay. Um, as far as edibles, you know, you're concerned about like onset time, how long it would take to get in. Um, other ways you can go if you're worried about taking too long, we've got besides, and these are some other brand properties in it, but we do sell our dispensaries. So we've got, you know, like a medicated sucker, sublingual. You, you get it in through your tummy, and it's a much faster onset than your traditional edibles go through your liver. We've also got that, like they were talking before, there's 19% of people out there that they just don't feel the effects of metabolism. This is a great way to go. Also, something like uh, tincture. This is usually made with an uh, MCT oil. And you just you drop some in the tongue, gets in your bloodstream. So you're telling me if I take some of these gummies, one in five will come back and say, "Hey, I, I started low and I advanced slow." And you have a conversation about that, but that might not help me. Yeah. Okay. And then, and what should I do if I don't want to pay? And you said something. Yeah, I've been selling when you know, we around, we got mints. There's, there's lots of different varieties of ways you can do that, what's convenient for you. Okay. So now what about, um, so like every other 75 year old male, I get to pee every night at two o'clock. What if I get stoned at 10 and I'm too deep and I fall and break my head? Great thing about these. So your your dosage is measured out per gum drop. So you can start small. You can take half of one before you go to bed. You wake up in the middle of the night, you do your business. To fall back asleep, you can have the other half. You can, we, there are uh, drinks out there that are faster acting than an edible would be. So there's more, lots of options in here. We are even coming out with a gum drop line that will have CBN help you get back to sleep faster. So it's got the CBD, the THC, and the CBN. What about all these, like I heard there's two different strains. There's like the, uh, in the couch. <laughs> sure. And there's the other. Yeah. Which, uh, how do I know? We really try to avoid putting I'm those. super hip, 75 Yeah, <laughs> we really try to avoid putting those two labels on them. Which is interesting. But we found, and you know, as medical cannabis has gone on, those two, just that dichotomy, indica, sativa, really doesn't work. It's more about those terpenes that are in the plant that really drive it. Less about where it came from Thailand or Nepal. You know, like more having to do so. You're looking for something in the daytime. I'll just use this active. Let's say we decided you're okay with inhalables. You want some of these for daytime. So this would be our active. And it's got a, a 21 THC to CBD ratio, but it's not just straight THC. We use these and add terpenes to it. So this one's got limiting in it, it's that uplifting effect. We've got, you know, something kind of, they, the, the names are in there, it's our focus. So we, we pair the terpenes with there, the 
the desired effects. So maybe like, let's decide we've decided this. You've got your active, this could be great for the dead. You've got your relaxed. This one's got flammable in it, which is what's in lavender. You guys are all familiar with like the aromatherapy sprays of lavender and the elements. Same, same thing. So you have a product that I can take during the day and a low dose if you give me some pain relief, but my grandkids won't be able to tell. And you're not going to be on the couch all day saying to the TV, you, you, you might feel invigorated and active enough to be able to do something. You know, we see it day in and day out, people coming in all day. I don't take my, my Xanax, my Vicodin, or my muscle relaxers anymore. I need three of these a day and I'm happy. It's amazing. Okay, well, one second. I forgot to take my boyfriend for today. <laughs> is there any worry about that? How Americans, yes. Oh, see, my doctor didn't ask me because he was on the phone, right? <laughs> so is there a medicine I shouldn't take with, or is there a medicine I should not take in uh, cannabinoids with? Yeah, boyfriend is a lot of them. Oh, there's two others. Okay, all right. So you guys are aware of all that? Yeah, fully it's definitely, and you know, it's something we are asking people, like, what else you take? What are you doing? You know, and, yeah. And, um, you know, I uh, I had some PTSD from Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Can this help that? Absolutely. Okay. All right, good. So, you know, general questions, right, are important. Um, there's some high points there. Again, warfarin, theophylline, and I can't remember the name of the seizure drug. But if your patient has a seizure disorder, look it up. What is it called? Oh, yeah. Okay, so that must not be very common here. I don't really want to see here. But Sir, can you talk to what ailments and issues and regular kind of conversation Absolutely. Um, some of our patients, PTSD is actually one of the most common issues I have. Um, it is. Sorry, I am the one that wears their heart on their sleeve for this job, so I like very much feel what my patients are. Um, I have ALS patients that come in. Um, one of the utmost worst diseases I personally believe that is on this planet. We know we can't cure that, but I know that I absolutely have strengths that can help my ALS patients. I have chemo patients, cancer patients, um, again, PTSD patients, but a huge part of our patient um, census that comes in. Not only are our strengths and our products a great factor for our patients, we as people, we as the humans, our, our bartenders, your patient care specialists, we consume the products that we are selling. That is how we know what they do. I know personally what every single flower in my dispensary does because I either consume it or I have friends and family that consume it. That's what's great about our industry. We talk amongst each other. I have a lot of Tourette's patients that come into my dispensaries. Clearly, waxes, concentrates, dabs help with the Tourette's issues that they suffer from. That is major for them that they can go on and function in normal life. Um, they are also, we are also looked at as their therapy. I have Tourette's patients that come in that have never been comfortable speaking to someone about their Tourette's and their tics. They can come in and we don't judge. We're there to help. Um, I actually, I have one AIDS patient that comes in. He's an older gentleman. Um, his symptoms can vary. So one day he can come in and I can give him something that we have called um, Ambien Rock Candy. It is one of the best terms I have because it helps relax the mind. It then helps relax the body. Um, that gentleman is under a lot of stress. I'm sure if anyone has had any answer to 
patient would know. So it's good to help him mentally, emotionally, and physically. He can come in and he talk, he talk to us. We create very close bonds with our patients. Um, I have a couple, they were actually at my dispensary on a Saturday, headed to see her mother. Sunday morning they came in completely distraught, they found her mother dead. Um, what do you do? You know, you are a human, and you come around and you fuck that person, and you cry with that person, and then you do what you can in the cannabis industry. You recommend products, you help them, you listen to them. It's not just about the flower, it's not just about cannabis, it's truly about the human connection. The other thing I would want to point out is that they have some really interesting, your marketing team, John, is, is super cool. The names of your products are really interesting, right? And they're not medical. Like alien rock candy, what name what's the weirdest name you have? Oh, um that's a good one. Yeah, um uh, <laughs> Fatso. Fatso. So if I want Fatso, what am I getting? Fatso is a really, really great nighttime. It helps relax the body. It's good for pain. Um if you're that 75-year-old that's like I can't sleep. Fatso is an amazing body relief that helps you kind of just relax. You're kind of like, you know, I think I just want to forget the day and then I'm just going to go to bed and it just melts in. Um, and then when you get up at 2 in the morning, you're like, man, I got to pee. You have options. You can take a hit of Fatso again and he's going to help you relax and you're going to have a very quick onset. Or for me personally, I like to travel and I don't like to travel with flowers, so I use the ratio pen a lot. The purple one is something I keep off my nightstand at all times, whether at home or if I'm traveling. Because I am 41, I am that 75-year-old that wakes up at 2 a.m. and has to be every morning. Um, so the purple pen is fantastic for that. You don't have to light anything up. You take your hit. With our ratio line, it will vibrate. That is called microdosing. So you know you are taking a hit. You know what you're receiving. I know personally for me, two hits off of my purple pen. I'm good to go. By check 2.30, I'm probably chilling and just back to sleep. So the key is they have interesting names, but you guys know what that is targeting. Absolutely, absolutely. The, I would say we have about 25 to 30 strains um, in-house. With that, each of us is one center's patient care specialist. Part of our job is to understand what that does. Um, we have one called Sunny B. It's delicious. I kind of call it a big ball of sunshine. This is one we kind of consider like you wake up in the morning to get up and go. Um, just get you going in the morning. But a lot of times, Maybe we haven't tried it, but the dripping tests are on the labels of this. So we can give you an idea of the effects of the flower just based off these numbers. Like we have this great pie of cookies. Pyanosamine, neurolidol, and beta-mucine. So we know it's going to be a pretty sedative from all the mucine. It's going to have all those good anti-inflammatory properties and all that. And our patients are learning this with us. Um, nine months ago when we started terpene, was that a concept a lot of our patients understood? Uh, you know, we would go with the lavender, that's natural terpene, that's how we could explain it. Our patients now are learning, and they come in, and instead of going, what's your highest THC, what's your indica, what's your sativa, they're asking about terpenes. They're asking which terpene is going to help with pain, which terpene is going to help with anxiety, or what's going to do the opposite, what's going, you know, my PTSD patients. I don't want them to have anxiety, so we're going to stay away from specific issues, you know, specific strains and specific terpenes. That is a great deal of our job. So, last question is, um, you know, I don't really want anyone to see me in there. Are sure. there windows? There's not. So, within our company, or I believe within the state, if you are a THC provider, you cannot look in or out. So, we are 100% about being discreet. Thank you. Oh, you, 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 you
tour. If you want to make your way up here, if you guys can stay in here, it's not like show. They have some bud in this. Take a good smell of this, and it's really, really interesting. That's a flower. Oh, it's not cute. They have one with some flower in it. And you guys smell the marking here, right? That's different than what you're smelling here. There's a reason that they'll talk about that. Well, also, we pulled out a couple bins out for you guys to be able to see quantity of flower and be able to smell it and see it. So let's go for tours. What we're going to do is get our friends up to three groups, about 10 to 15. So you go with uh, Tommy, Captain's our director, Cultivation, myself, and we'll do like a 15 minute lap. We'll lag behind about five to seven minutes. You're not going to lap. Emmy, and one quick note if you saw this table out here, there's a bunch of pamphlets, um, a lot of uh, uh, little taste testers for you for honeybee. They're, they're not dedicated. Uh, it says they would love the THC, but there is no T2. It's just for flavor. Um, but take as many candles as you want for your offices. Uh, you cannot bring your drinks to the back at all. Last. Um, and John, are you expanding all there? You can have more than two locations. We're expanding next door now. We have a second facility that we're in the process. We're dispensing. Two more. Two more dispensing. And this product, we're selling about 90% of the dispensing across the state. That's the other thing. When you go to the center, you're going to get products from different stuff. Yeah, there's only one cultivation. So, yeah. All right. So, you guys, thank you so much for 